you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Also, it's going to be in the handout there, and we'll look at this passage. I'm excited to be able to have a baptism today and see uh, the Lord continue to grow His church, and excited about uh, being uh, rejoicing at what God's done in our congregation over the past uh, few months and year. But we're going to look in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, and then we're going to go through chapter 4, uh, verse 13, and look at, that, look at this today. You know, uh, many of us have probably taken shortcuts when we're driving around. Uh, if this is a local area to you, and uh, growing up here, there's a lot of back roads that you can take and maybe cut through different things. And shortcuts are really good when you know where it's taking you, uh, and when you're, you know, following Google Maps, and it tells you much longer, and you know you can get there quicker. Sometimes shortcuts don't work out so well. I remember um, one of my brothers, I won't tell you which one, tried to take a shortcut to a place when we were fishing on the Arroyo, and his shortcut almost ended up with a couple trucks in the side of a ditch. Uh, actually, it took a long time to pull, of, pull us out and uh, get everything set, and sometimes shortcuts don't work out. And when we take shortcuts in God's plan, it doesn't really work out. And this is a point we're going to see today, where we're going to see that God in Jesus Christ is, is tempted to take shortcuts with God's plan. We see that Satan tried to tempt Jesus for a crown without a cross. But we're going to see that because Jesus, the sinless Son of God, faithfully overcame temptation, we can follow Him through our temptations. So just as Christ obeyed God, we can obey Him, and we say no to the shortcuts that often are tempted to or offered to us in temptation by Satan or by our flesh. Let me remind you a few things as we look at Luke and as we look at, uh, get back into this. Remember, Luke is written to Theophilus, and he's trying to prove a few things. He's trying to pr prove the certainty of Jesus, the Savior. And he's trying to weave together this narrative, showing that Jesus is the sinless, obedient, and faithful Son of God who can be trusted. And we're going to see that today. And so look in Luke chapter, uh, chapter 3, ver verse 21, and we're going to read just the first two verses uh, there in 21 and 22, make a couple comments and get, then get to the genealogy and continue on. But this whole section is tied together, and we'll see some of that, and I'll point that out. It says this in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized, uh, was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And we see Jesus is here baptized, the son of God, and this section comes right after a section of John the, John the Baptist baptizing many people. But John the Baptist is now off the scene. He's, he's moved out of the way, and Luke is wanting to point something to us. He's saying, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, Jesus also was baptized with the people. It's almost like an afterthought. Jesus is baptized, and we see in Matthew and other places uh, in Mark about the baptism, but Luke almost mentions this as an afterthought, but he's connecting all these people that have been baptized with Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to have his sins forgiven. He was sinless. But Jesus connects himself with humans through his, his baptism. And he's there praying. 
And as he's praying, the heavens are opened up. And when we think about this, the heavens being opened up, we think about a really an eschatological or apocalyptic really type event. The heavens are opened up. And whenever this happens in the Bible, we see that really there's a new, a new happening or something is taking place in the Bible. And this, what's happening right here, is God is going to be declaring that his son is here. It says this in, verse, in Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my ser- servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so this has been predicted, that Jesus or the Messiah would bring forth justice to the nations, but it actually is, is shown that we have the Spirit given to Jesus. And right here in this verse, we see not only do the heavens open up, but the, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And He's anointed by the, the Spirit. If you remember in the Old Testament, many of the kings were anointed just like this, or in a similar set sitting, uh, situation. They were anointed with oil and not with a dove. But this is representative of God's anointing on Jesus, saying, this is my son, and in some sense saying, this is the king, this is the Messiah. He has the legitimate right to the throne is in Israel. But the Father speaks out from heaven. God the Father speaks and says this about his son. He says, here, he is well, he's, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you can imagine this scene. Jesus has just been baptized. All these people are around. The heavens open up. The Spirit descends on Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's a voice from heaven. And, it's, and God says, here is my son. Psalm, this is a th- reference back to Psalm 2-7 where it says, I will decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, son. today I have begotten you. And really, we see right here, God placing this authority on Jesus. Jesus already had all this, but he's declaring it to the people. And you would think when you would hear this from the heavens, people would automatically say, this is the Messiah. But there's going to be a lot of challenges to Jesus' authority. And then we see this, and, and really, if you're reading your Bible, like, like I have quite a few times through this section, and you see the genealogy put in here, you just kind of think it's random. I kind of look at this, and I, th- I think a little bit like maybe Luke was writing, and he was thinking, oh yeah, I forgot, I wanted to put the genealogy of Jesus, and just, I'm going to throw it in right here. I'm too far in, and I don't want to go back and erase everything. I'm going to just throw it in right here. But that's not really what's happening. I think the scriptures are so clear and so well prepared and thought out because they're inspired by God that this is here for a purpose. And when you're reading scripture, let me encourage you to be thinking about repeated words and things that come up a whole bunch. Now, we just were told that this is God's beloved son, right? Now, when you start reading verse 23 through 38 you immediately see a few repeated words. And I think we can see this connection point here. And I'm going to only read a few verses in this genealogy, point out a few things, and then move into chapter 14. But we see the genealogy of Jesus. And listen if you can hear some repeated words just in this. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, And then we jump down to verse 31. The son of David, 
Verse 32, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. In verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And then we see finishing out that, he says in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Are there some repeated words in there? Yeah, the word son of is, is like repeated all throughout that. And God just declared, this is my beloved son. Luke's not putting this here on accident. He's not saying, oh, oh I forgot something. He's putting this on purpose. And he's including all the people in this for a reason. Now, sometimes we've looked at and said, well, Matthew is Mary's genealogy and Luke is, is Joseph's. And that may be, uh, some people still think that, but it's probably not actually as clear. That's not as actually as, as good. This is actually helping us to see that Christ is the Son of God from birth all the way back to Adam. And then, as you see in verse 38, the Son of God. We see that Jesus is connected to the people in verse 21 in his humanity. Through his baptism, he's praying there. We also see he's connected to man through Joseph in verse 23. And he's connected to another man, very important in history, to Adam in verse 38. And so Jesus is connected to people. He's 100% man. He's fully human. He can sympathize with us in our humanity because he is fully man. But then we also see in verse 22, the whole Trinity is working there in verse 22. We see the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. We see God declares, this is my son. And we see Jesus there after his baptism. And it's connected to God. This is God in the flesh. We see verse 38, this genealogy goes all the way back and it's woven together. And we see it finishes with Adam, the son of God. Jesus is 100% human. He's also 100% God. It's not 50-50. It's really 100-100. Fully man, fully God. This is how Jesus, as God, can be our fully human sacrifice for our sins. And so Luke is just weaving this together. And this genealogy is really, it's more about theology than it is history. Now, the history is there, but the theology that, that uh, Luke is telling us is that this is God, and this is a man, and he's fully here to help us understand that. Let me just tell you, if you have questions about the gene- genealogy, and you've ever wondered, and you read Luke's and Matthew's together, and you compared them, there are some differences, and let me just tell you, the ESV study Bible, the notes in there are excellent. And just that would be a good place to start if you've got some questions about it. Let, uh, let me just tell you, uh, the little qu- questions that come up should not shake your faith. These were written in specific purposes and specific order for us to see. And especially here with Luke, we see the crescendo. The crescendo in verse 38 saying, This is the Son of God, born of a virgin, born in the line of David, born as a man, after Adam, the Son of God. And we're going to see that this is all connected and woven together. And sometimes these chapter breaks in, verse, in chapter 4, you look at it and you may think, hey, this is just broken up in a random spot. And, and this was written in afterwards, the chapter breaks. But really, this narrative just goes completely together. Notice he was already filled with the Spirit. And go to, go to chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And we're going to see that this is totally connected. These passages are here to show us that this is the Son of God. Now, let me just tell you this when, before we get into this section and Luke chapter 4. When we look at the temptation of Jesus, sometimes we'll read about the temptation and we think this is exactly, all this is, is a prescriptive way for how to handle temptation. Let's say I'm tempted to be angry at someone. If I just quote a Bible verse, I'll stop being angry and the temptation will flee. And sometimes we just think that's the prescribed method. And let me tell you, that's not a bad way to handle things. But Jesus is not necessarily, these are not written for a prescriptive way to say, hey, follow Jesus. Whenever a, a temptation comes, quote a scripture and, and, say, and, and say that, and then it's going to run away. That, that's not the case necessarily. In fact, a long time ago when I was, uh, when I was really young and uh, like in the 80s or early 90s, in this auditorium, we had a VBS and, uh, and I was just a little kid and a VBS is a vacation Bible school. And we had, maybe we can find it somewhere in the closets or maybe hopefully we got rid of it, uh, but there was a little puppet that would terrify you and it looked like a count, like maybe Count Dracula, but you know, kind of like was a representative of, of Satan and and uh, I'm not sure if it was somebody here that was still holding it up or if it was somebody back in the time. But every once in a while, maybe from like a corner over here and, and the front of the church looked different then, or maybe from back there in the, in the doorway, this little count would pop his head up. And he would say something like, kids, disobey your teachers. And then, uh, then we would, as kids, quote something like, children, obey your parents, for this is good. And then, and then they would be like, no, no, no. And this little puppet would, you know, fade off to the side and go, go out the door. And it was, you know, terrifying and also amazing. And, uh, and you kind of look at that and you look at this scripture and you think, this is exactly what's going on here. You know, this is what we should do. Just quote a scripture. And, and that little Count Dracula guy and Satan will run away. Now, that's helpful. But let me just tell you this, oftentimes you and I know the scriptures well. We know exactly what we should do, but sometimes we just linger in temptation and think, maybe I can handle this. Maybe I'll be like Jesus and endure for 40 days in the wilderness. Maybe I'll go directly one-on-one -on -one with Satan. Let me just tell you it's a bad idea. The moment temptation comes, what you should do is flee. And run away. Get away from it. Make a way to escape like, like uh, we see Paul saying. Uh, there's a way to escape. We saw in Paul uh, writing that in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. Run from temptation. This is helpful. This describes how we can handle temptation. But let me just say this. There's so much more going on in this passage. And this passage is just so incredibly beautiful. It's tied together with so many other scriptures. There's so many other places that these temptations come up and what it's tying together in the Old Testament. We're going to point that out. And let me just tell you, just a total side note, thank you for letting me be a pastor here and get to preach the Scriptures and study the Scriptures. As I'm going through this, and I was telling pastor this, I'm blown away at how this story is woven together with so many Old Testament passages, New Testament passages, and just how it connects so many things. And how sometimes when we just read Scripture on the surface, we look at it 
And we think, oh, that's nice. That's a temptation and Jesus won. But when we see what's going on, our mind and our eyes are opened up to see the beauty of Scripture. Young people, and really anybody here, let me encourage you. I mean, spend your life studying Scripture. And I would hope that some of you would say, I want to be a person that's going to teach Scripture. And I may even be a pastor and preach about, uh, preach about this. Because I'm telling you, what a job, right? I get to study the Word of God and proclaim it to you. And so in the next little bit, I want to go through this and explain this, but I'll tell you, I'm not going to do as good a job as you could do as you study yourself, but I want you to see this and how good it is. Young men, don't stoop to be the president if God is calling you to be a pastor. This connection is so incredible. Let's look at this in verse, uh, four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 4. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And we, when he was ended, he was hungry. The devil said to, you, to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, when you think of this and you read this, there's some things that you should come to mind. There's some pretty famous temptations that should come up. We should probably think a little bit about the garden. There was another time Satan came and directly tempted humans. He came to Adam and Eve, directly tempting them, and he directly challenged God's authority. And really, they fell because they saw something was good, but it was a desire that they had also to eat. They were hungry, they saw something was good, they doubted God's word, and they ate. But unlike Adam, Jesus actually obeys in this passage. So this passage is here to inform us that God, Jesus obeyed God. He's the better Adam. But there's also a really clear connection to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And when you read this and, and see this, all of a sudden it's like, no, Lord, there is so much more going on to inform us and tell us who Jesus is. And we look at the heart of this passage, and we see what God says about Israel as to be fascinating. We see the connection in Exodus 4.22, and it should be in your handouts there. We'll see Exodus 4.22. It says this, And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It's interesting, just before this, God told all the people in the presence of the baptism, that this is Jesus, my firstborn son, in whom I'm well pleased. And we see that God, and we're going to see this connection throughout this passage. We're going to even look at Satan's temptation in, in verse 3. Look at the words Satan uses. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, and there's a direct challenge to Jesus as the son of God. When we read this in Deuteronomy, uh, when we think back, think back to De Deuteronomy chapter 8 as well. So we realize Israel is called the firstborn son of God, and think about what they did in the wilderness. Look at Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you. Think if there's any similarities. The Lord led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
And he humbled you and let you, uh, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I'm just telling you, you may just say, you know, scriptures aren't connected. They're just, you know, totally separate. But, but I read this and I immediately think this has to be talking about Jesus, the better Adam, and he's the better Israel. He is the one that actually fulfills God's commands. I mean, the connections in here are so obvious. The, the wilderness, the children of Israel were led into the wilderness by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, which was God. They're led by God, as it says even in Deuteronomy, they're led into the wilderness for 40 years. And that number 40 isn't some magical number. It's just simply connecting the 40 days and the 40 years, saying this Jesus was also tested in the wilderness. And we see this in Luke, that all 40 days in the wilderness, he's being tested. Just like the children of Israel were tested to see if they would keep God's commands, Jesus is tested to see, will he keep God's commands? And just like the children of Israel were hungry in the wilderness, so Jesus is hungry in the wilderness. And incredibly, this is woven together. Do you think, let me just tell you this, if you question the scripture and wonder, you know, is it true? Can you really believe it? Look, I, I kind of get tired of trying to prove it to somebody because I can't. But the more you study scripture and you see it, it's like, how can it not be true? It is so woven together thousands of years before you see this and Luke weaving this together to see this and see what's happening. It makes a beautiful picture for us to trust the word of God. But the anointed son of God was tested just like Adam, just like Israel, but his obedience sets him apart. He's the sinless suffering Messiah that we can trust. Now, let's get into these temptations. We want to beware of the deceitful desires that are often offered to us. Look in verse thir- uh, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now some people have wondered and looked at this and think, Is this a legitimate temptation? I mean, this should be easy for Jesus to pass this test. Now, if you remember right before this in in verse 2, it says that Jesus was hungry. Now, we don't need anybody giving testimonies, but have you ever been around somebody that's tired and hungry, and we call them hangry? You ever felt that way? You would almost, I mean, sometimes you get around somebody like that, and it's like, just give me food. I don't care what it is. And I imagine Jesus in the wilderness 40 days being tested and tempted without food is absolutely starving. And his desires as a human, remember, 100% human, just like you and I, wanting food, is probably thinking there that this offer that Satan says would actually be easy. There's plenty of stones around here. I'm the God of the universe. I could turn any of these into a loaf of bread. And you've seen somebody that's hangry and hungry and starving scarf down a loaf of bread. And all of a sudden, this temptation becomes very real. But Jesus doesn't fall. Instead, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, and he, hum- and he humbled you and left you hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn the stones into bread? Yes. He would have been taking a shortcut, avoiding God's plan. He would have given in to a temptation of Satan. But he says, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to God and his word, and I'm going to follow his plan. But you would remember Exodus 16, the children of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the, and the people of Israel said, what would, uh, would it that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The children of Israel failed this test. They were there, starving, hungry, wanting food, complained, became bitter, and said, God, we don't even want what you've offered to us. Send us back to Israel. But Jesus, instead of grumbling, instead of complaining, he trusts God's word, and he avoids the deceitful desires that come up. Are the, are, is, a, is, hunger, is hunger a legitimate desire? Of course it is. But we can't fulfill our desires in deceitful ways. Jesus valued obedience to God the Father and His plan more than His own satisfaction. And that's the problem that we have with temptation. We often value our satisfaction greater than God's plan. We say, what I want is more important than what God wants me to do. And so we give in. We sin. But Jesus obeyed. I mean, our desires are normal. Your desire to have safety is good, but it sometimes leads to a place of comfort where you never step out for God. Our desire for food is normal, but sometimes we overeat and become a glutton. Sometimes we have a, de we have a desire for sex that's normal, but sometimes it's taken out or gone to fulfill it outside of God's parameters of marriage. Sometimes we have a desire for unity but we do it at the expense of compromise of theological truths that we know to be true. We often desire things, and the desire may be correct, but we look for deceitful ways that we can fulfill them. And Jesus looks at these and says, absolutely not. I'm following God's plan for what my life. And he confirms his sonship in the first test. Look at the second test here. Satan offers another shortcut. Jesus is tired, hungry, he's been tempted, and the devil is there and takes him to see all the kingdoms of the world. Now, whatever this looked like must have been stunning. It must have been fascinating. And we know this isn't a baseless offer because Revelation, if we read in Revelation, Satan has power over the kingdoms of this world. And we've even seen in Luke, Luke made it clear to point out that the world was under rule of the Roman Empire running against God, and Satan makes him an offer. Satan says, take a shortcut. Worship me, and I'll give you these kingdoms. You won't have to suffer for all these nations. We remember in Exodus 32, Moses was there, and the people, Moses is on the mountain, and these people are wondering, where is Moses? Well, God's plan must not be being, being fulfilled. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. They somehow randomly threw gold earrings into the fire. At least this is the story, how it's told. They threw earrings into the fire, and just magically, out came a golden calf, and they worship it. And obviously, that was a lie, but they were trying to, taking a shortcut. God's not here. Let's figure out something to worship. 
and they disobey God's command. But look what Jesus does in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms on the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus hears this and rebuffs him. In Deuteronomy 6.13 and 1 Samuel, two verses, I'm not going to read those, but we see very clearly they're commanded to worship and serve God. Luke tells us that Jesus' kingdom would have no end. If we, will, if we jump back to chapter 1 and verse 33, we would see Jesus has a kingdom that will never end. But Satan is offering a kingdom here, and he's saying, take a shortcut. Let me give you all these things. And Jesus, knowing all things, knows what the road ahead is going to look like. He knows the road ahead, and what we're going to see in Luke, chapter after chapter, and all the way up until the end, Jesus is going to be attacked, beaten, scoffed at, mocked, rejected, and he knows the path ahead is going to be awful. In fact, Jesus has just experienced 40 days of hunger and temptation and testing. Jesus knows that this is going to be a tough road, and this is a legitimate offer. Satan is saying, I will give you these things. But Satan offers Christ a crown without the cross. But Jesus chose to obey and take the road to the cross. He says, I don't need this. I need to obey God the Father. Satan offers up shortcuts that often sound very sweet. It sounds good because when we can avoid pain, when we can avoid suffering, when we can avoid trials, when we can avoid the hardships in life, That's what we want. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to follow the path of God. It's interesting. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have had great blessing in the garden. If Israel would obey, they would have had great blessing. Jesus does obey. And what does he get? Jesus gets a life of shame and suffering and eventually death. And where does the blessing go for Christ? Well, the blessing is in the fact that he redeems us. We're called his precious people, a chosen possession. It's incredible that Jesus, in his obedience, says, yes, I'm going to go to the path of most difficulty because he was willing to worship God alone. We finish out this chapter in verses 9 through 13, and Satan's already tried and failed two attempts to tempt Jesus, and Jesus has triumphed. You may look at this like just as a mere formality. Well, just one last temptation because, you know, we just like, you know, things of three and the Bible has a lot of things of three. So let's just make a third temptation. But I think this is a legitimate temptation again. And Satan attacks Jesus and he attacks his sonship specifically. Now, Jesus was offered these temptations, the first two, and Satan doesn't use scripture. But Satan is a master manipulator. In fact, even today, Satan uses Scripture, and people will use Scripture to twist to get what they want. They will manipulate people with Scripture. They will twist it and get people to follow their ways. We've seen this from false prophets, false teachers. And that's why when we look at the Bible, we want to point out the clarity of it. We want you to study the Bible on your own. We don't want to deceive you. We don't want the Bible in a different language. We want you to be able to read it with clarity. 
But Satan is using this, and he's twisting the Scripture. And he says, or Psalm 91 says this, in verse 11, he will, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now Jesus is here, in, uh, like jump down to verse 9 there in, in Luke 4. It says, he took, uh, Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then uh, he quotes that verse, for it is written, he will, be, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan offers this up. Now, some, some have debated whether this is a vision or whether this is an actual event. And, and I would lean, and, and you can, this is debated, but I lean that this is an actual event that Jesus has taken to the highest point of the temple. Now, there's a couple different places in the temple. This could have been in, in one of the corners of the temple is looking over a great valley, and it would have been a very steep. But as they've done more research and seen, the temple is actually very, there's another point of it that was very tall that was actually looking over where a, a number of people would have been. And just as he was offered a crown without the cross, all these kingdoms would wor worship you. Satan is offering something to Jesus. And I think he knows if Jesus would throw himself off and all these people would see Jesus unharmed because angels come and minister to him, imagine what all the people would have thought. Immediately, they would have thought, oh, wow, this must be the Messiah. Or this must be some prophet from God. This must be some incredible person. And some debate whether this is a public place in the temple. I would say it, it is a public place because it's very specific what he's telling. A corner of the temple. And that's what people thought of. The temple is a public place. And the Messiah, tired, hungry, suffering through these temptations, is offered a crown without the cross and is offered all this fame, all this praise by just doing some miracle in front of all these people. Getting the angels involved. But he says no. Look in verse 13, or verse 12. Jesus says and answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan will come back on the scene later in Luke. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, and all this whole passage, if you just parallel this with Deuteronomy 6-8, through 8, it will be an incredible study for you. It says, you shall not put the Lord God to the test as, you've t as you tested him at Massa. And like the Israelites, Jesus is tempted to test God's promises on his life. God, will you protect my life? Really, Jesus, uh, the, the children of Israel at Massa are there wanting water. They're thirsty. And they're saying, God, will you protect our life? And instead of trusting God, they complain. They get frustrated. And they beg Moses to do something and say, you brought us out here to die. Send us back to Egypt. But Jesus passes this temptation and the devil departs. And instead of complaining, instead of taking the easy route, instead of taking a shortcut or pursuing people's praise instead of God's plan, Jesus says, I'm going to obey God, my Father. And by Jesus' obedience, it's confirmed that this is the Son of God. Remember, Jesus' temptations are legitimate. You remember in the, in the garden what Jesus says, and we'll get to this eventually in Luke, but Jesus says 
to God, let this cup pass from me. At that point, he saw what was going to happen. He saw how awful his life was going to go. He knew his death was imminent. And we get a glimpse of this at the very beginning of Luke. An offer to him to take the shortcut and say, I don't need the cross. I'm going to do something else. Satan took that shortcut. Satan rebelled against God. And Jesus legitimately obeys God, fulfills the promises, and sets his mind towards Jerusalem, ready to go to the cross and die for all humanity. And remember in the garden, he says, let this cup pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but yours. And Jesus, an obedient son, follows God. He obeys for 40 days here in the wilderness, and he obeys for the rest of, the li- of his life until the cross. And we look at this and we think, maybe this isn't a legitimate temptation. Maybe this is just a big story and just is kind of interesting. But no, I would say that Jesus took every blow that Satan could hand out. In fact, he, t- he goes to the cross, but at this point, he's one-on-one with Satan. And these temptations are there, and Jesus says no to them. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired, to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by everybody. He knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus knows these things. And so when we look in Hebrews and we read these words in Hebrews, it gives us so much hope. Look in Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Listen, brother and sister in Christ, you may be going through terrible difficulties. Your life may be on the rocks. You may be tempted to take shortcuts to get what you want. You may be deceived into taking a path that's not in God's plan. You may even seek after the praise of other people. And those temptations are tough. They're overwhelming sometimes. But we have a high priest, we have a Savior that knows exactly what you're going through. And you can go to Him. In fact, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And you think sometimes that you can endure temptation. You think, I know myself pretty good. I can stand against this. And Jesus says, no, I know you can't. I know how difficult it was. I obeyed, but it cost me my life. In fact, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured everything so that he could have the joy of calling us his children. Jesus did that for us. Look, we don't have to try and see temptation and say, Maybe let, let me just endure through this and see if I can handle this on my own. You can't. You need a Savior. You need a Savior that is sympathetic to you. One that's been tempted. 
One that has proven that He is the Son of God, and He also fully is human. He can be trusted. You may be offered shortcuts. You may be offered deceit, or you may be deceived now to say running after sin is worth it, but let me tell you, it is not. The end is destruction. You may be here thinking, I don't really need any of this. There's no point to this. Well, I'll say this. Jesus makes some amazing claims here. You either are going to see Jesus as a liar, and all these things that he said are untrue, that he's the Son of God, that he truly is God, or you'll say he's a lunatic, because only a lunatic would run around saying that they're God and not proving it. Or you're going to say, no, this is the Lord. And if you say this is the Lord and say, I believe this passage and I believe these things are true, then you need to submit to him in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I trust in you. All throughout the history of the word of God and throughout man, people have sinned and failed over and over. We saw the children of Israel. They failed. All their trials in the wilderness, they failed over and over. Adam and Eve were at a tree, standing there, and Satan offers them the opportunity to have knowledge. And at this tree, they fall and they sin. But God said to Jesus, obey me. Obey me about a tree about a tree that he's going to actually have to go to, and the tree is actually a cross that he's going to die at. And Jesus says, even starting out in his ministry, I'm going to set my face towards the cross. And he does that for you and for me. This is a beautiful passage of what Jesus Christ endured for us to prove that he's the Son of God and that we can go to him because he is the one that has faced every temptation and we can fully trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at a passage today that is so beautiful and clear of the connections throughout Scripture that you're setting up Jesus, the Son of God, and in such incredible ways. Lord, we see now here in Luke that you are the Son of God. We progress through and see how incredible you are to endure all these temptations. But Lord, even at the slightest urge of sin, we often give in and fail. Lord, would, we, would you help us to be resolute to run against temptation, to say that we can run to you, our Savior, because you know what it's like to endure temptation. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be baptized, be baptized as believers. We're excited to see Aiden baptized. Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to the day that we are risen with you. But Lord, we thank you for the symbol that we are risen with you through even uh, your death and resurrection. Lord, thank you that because of Christ, we can have the hope of eternity. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be resolute in following after you, even when Satan tries to tempt us and buffet us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.